welcome back to Poldark Podcast, a podcast that discusses anything and everything Poldark, be it the television adaptation or the book series by Winston Graham. We've got it covered, and in this week's episode, we will continue our season one rewatch with a discussion of episode 107. We also have our book club segment, yay, and we just started The Four Swans, so the episode is packed with Poldark goodness. My name is Rita, I live in England, I Tumblr at Princess of Poldark, and I tweet at Rita Bites. This is Michelle, I am in the States, I Tumblr at Poldark Muses, that's Poldark M-M-M-U-S-E-S, and I tweet at Musings M-M-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. And hi everyone, my name is Delenda, I live in France, I blog at British Liso on Tumblr, and I tweet at Delenda Dia. Okay, we are going to start with our episode description. Uh, the episode begins with Andrew Blamey leaving a letter for Demelza to hand to Verity. It's all very cloak and dagger stuff. Uh, hiding places, secret meetings. Now, if you have to go to such lengths to hide your actions, perhaps you shouldn't be doing them in the first place. Um, elsewhere, uh, George is very unsubtly blackmailing people to stop working with Carnmore Copper Company, uh, quite tragically for Ross, but usefully for George. Uh, a number of businesses in the area owe debts to the Warleggins. At the Red Lion, Ross is looking over some paperwork. Now, call me stupid, but if the Enterprise and the people involved were to be kept such a secret, why the hell is he working in the local pub? That he knows George frequents. Anyway, enter Francis. Still building your empire, Ross. And you bought all the copper. All we could afford while the price was low. Next time they'll be wise to us, and the price will rise. That's just good news for the mines. And your shareholders. In the short term, yes. And in the long term, anything which breaks the Woolag and Stranglehold and stops them keeping prices artificially low. Benefits leisure and Cornwall. Benefits miners, smelters and shareholders alike. The rustling you just heard was Ross quickly grabbing his papers and hiding them from Francis. He asks for his discretion about the business in a way that basically implies he doesn't trust Francis around George. He may or may not be wrong about that. <laughs> Over at a very tense Daniel's residence. Karen is feeding the creepy bird Mark tamed for her and is now just hanging out in their house. WTF. Whilst Mark glares at her, she brings him di his dinner, which isn't the pie or whatever he expected. She tells him she has been too busy to bake as she has been helping, quote, helping, Dr. Ennis with his work. <laughs> Mark is smoldering with rage. Cut to Dwight at the mine, who is tending to the nameless and faceless extras that always have cuffs. <laughs> his hair is blowing in the wind and is mad floppy, so we are basically at a 10 at thirst level for the handsome doctor. A little further away is Judd, carrying a barrel of some type of liquor that he tucked away at Wheel Grace. Um, and this scene is just straight up exposition, just there to remind viewers that there's a second mine, Wheel Grace, that's great for hiding stuff, so keep that in mind for later. Uh, Ross walks over to the fantastic-looking Dwight, and they discuss business. Ross is hopeful the price of copper will increase this month. He also subtly warns Dwight to be careful, um, just as Mark Daniels is kind of trundling past. 
Uh, Ross, do you ever take your own advice? Probably not. This is one of those do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do moments for him. Uh, as I said, Mark Daniel is walking past, glaring at Dwight in resentment, and goes to talk to him. Ross does. Uh, do any of these people really ever work? <laughs> they always seem to be coming and going. Although we do see Mark down in the mine pounding away most of the time uh, when we see him. Anyhow, um, they discuss how tired Karen is making him. You know, the evil harpy wants him to mend the roof of their cottage, for God's sake. Uh, Zacky rides up and interrupts. The mill they use to roll and cut the smelted copper is no longer available for them to work. Uh, George's handiwork is in full force and effect, and they are forced to take their business elsewhere. Cut to a very adorable scene of Demelza and Prudy trying to playfully encourage Julia to walk. They're interrupted by the loud, drunk singing of Judd, who probably drank the entire barrel already. They find him wasted and sitting in Ross's study, wearing Ross's hat. Like, who's got ideas above their station now, Judd? Demelza mostly seems amused, but Prudy furiously yells at him and he leaves the room, wandering off to do some more solo drinking. Over at Trenwith, Verity looks out the window. You know, the window. That is Elizabeth's window, Verity. Be gone from there. She sees Francis Elizabeth and Geoffrey Charles all walking along together and looks sad. When we see her dressed up in her travelling clothes and with a suitcase, it all suddenly makes sense. Her ass is gone. She leaves a letter with the faux-sleeping Aunt Agatha and gives her a gentle kiss goodbye. Back at Nampara, and Judd is still drinking and singing his drunk ass off. Uh, he stumbles into the kitchen where Prudy and Demelza are feeding Julia. So make milk curdle. Captain Poldark will fetch you such a collar pen. Captain Poldark. Who be Captain Poldark? Give him so airs. Everyone do know he's had half the maids from here to Truro. Keep your voice down before the child. The child? That child? What about Ginny Carr's child? What about it? Everybody do know that Captain Ross be his father. Tis a lie. Ignore him. Tis a wicked, wicked lie. No wonder he went to Bodmin, see Jim Carter in the ground. And don't he bendy brows at me, girl. He naught but a troll from Luggan. Go. Go where? I neither know nor care. But if you're still in this house by daybreak, I will personally horsewhip you from here to Truro. Captain Poldark to the rescue! Action with Elizabeth uncharacteristically notices something unrelated to herself and asks where Verity is. Francis assumes she's in her room. Back at Nampara, Ross and Demelza are eating dinner together. Demelza is worried that if Judd leaves, so will Prudy, but Ross is insistent that he has to go. He seems mad bitter that Judd stole his booze. Ross is the only drunken fool at Nampara, Judd. He says, <laughs> he says he has disrespected Demelza one too many times, and no one insults his wifey and gets away with it. True that. Uh, cut to Judd and Prudy leaving Nampara, carrying everything they own. Uh, Judd is, of course, complaining that it taint right, but Prudy threatens him with more violence, 
to shut him up. Poor Prudy is a martyr. <laughs> it's dinner time at Trenwith, and Francis and Elizabeth are still looking for Verity. They finally ask Aunt Agatha where she is, and she tells them that Verity is out, but that she left them a note. I've known and loved you all my life, dear Francis, so I pray you will understand the grief and loss I feel that this should be our parting. Francis throws the note away furiously. Cut to Troll, where Verity is standing outside of her future home with Andrew Blamey. He tells her that tomorrow they are to be wed. Verity looks pleased, but girl, please consider marrying someone with a better wig. That thing looks mangled as hell. So this is how she cares for us? To sneak away under our very noses and marry that wife-murdering drunkard? It does seem kind of ridiculous. Verity is of age, and although her brother disapproved, would have made the situation very difficult, she could very well have married Andrew without running away and worrying everyone. Anyway, Frances is sure she had help, and starts interrogating the servants for information. A maid who had seen Demelza on the grounds meeting with Verity tells Frances, who flips the fuck out, He's certain that Ross is behind the rekindling of the affair because, after all, he did allow the two to meet at his house before. But Elizabeth's loyalty to Ross emerges. Probably not the time, girl. <laughs> she insists that they have no proof that Ross was involved at all. Which is actually, Francis, which is actually right. <laughs> I mean, yes, but it's it's coming. It's not coming from a place of being reasonable, and that's what you just. <sighs> Frances, quite naturally, finds this very freaking typical. She always stands up for Ross, and this sends him over the edge. He cranks the strop up to eleven and flounces out, cursing his family and his existence, slamming the door dramatically. Naturally, this is when George slithers on into the reception hall. Talk about timing. He totally just heard, heard the entire exchange and awkwardly shuffles towards Elizabeth, apologizing for intruding, and asks if he can offer them some assistance. George, Elizabeth, and Francis all sit around the fire and discuss what just happened. George assumes that Francis's anger lies with Verity for the deceit, but Francis corrects him. Ross gets the full brunt for his misplaced anger. George stores that one away for later and in instead offers up a contrite apology to Francis about Matthew cheating him out of money. He has cancelled some of the debts Francis has incurred with the Rolegan Bank and gives him £1,200, which in today's currency is nearly £40,000. What the heck? They're really rich! Oh my god! You see, I did mend your smile, after all. George is tote smitten with Elizabeth. The implication is that he buys Francis's friendship back, but it also means he is able to regain Elizabeth's favor. A win-win scenario for good old George. Cut to Dwight Ennis's cottage where he is dissecting something really gross. I mean, ew. I don't even know what that was supposed to be. <laughs> it was nasty. Um... There's a knock on the door, and who else would it be but his number one fan, Karen Daniel. She is ostensibly there to help him with his research, and even as she makes a show of reading all of the labels of his medicines, it very quickly turns into her being the vamp, and she starts hitting on Dwight. 
He tells her she shouldn't come over, that her husband doesn't like it, but Karen just doesn't seem to care. She kisses him again and again, asking him to tell her to stop. Dwight's protests die out as he kisses her back. And yes, I think we're all diehard Caroline shippers, but I've got to admit, they look good making out. Uh, I don't know what it is. Luke really does kind of get into it, and it makes it look really, really hot. So as the camera pans away, it's clear they are obviously getting down to business. Bow chicka wow wow. Cut to Karen's husband, who is mining his little heart out in the mines. I guess we're supposed to feel bad for him, but I just can't muster up a care to give. Over at Nampara, Ross is again looking down at the super secret paper whilst Demelza and Julia sit across from him. They discuss the fact that George is trying to put him out of business and that he has to keep the name of the shareholders a secret. Demelza yanks the papers out of his hands. What are you doing? Hiding it. Suddenly, bells ring. There is a collapse at wheel leisure. Mark Daniel emerges in a puff of soot, coughing and bleeding, but saying he would sooner bleed to death than seek Dr. Ennis. At Trenwith, Francis and George are still chatting about Verity. Francis whines that he expected more loyalty from his only cousin, and the use of the word only is not book canon compliant, FYI. Saying ridiculous things like, what did I ever do to him? I suppose you married the girl he loved, didn't you? <laughs> oh, snap, George. And uh, Francis is like, oh, yeah, but he dismisses it. It was very long ago. Hashtag Poldark time. And Ross is now very happily married to a sunshine princess. George sympathizes with him, saying he too finds Ross unfathomable and aligning himself with Francis. Mark Daniel arrives home to find the cottage empty. He leaves and starts blowing out her name in the dark like a crazy person. <laughs> Cut to where Karen actually is, which is naked, in bed with Dwight Ennis. She sneaks out of his house, fully clothed this time, while Mark Daniel watches her from a hiding spot, which is bad. Very, very bad. Back to Trenwith, where Francis is drinking more and more wine. George sneakily brings up the smelting company. Francis, to his credit, explains that Ross is just trying to get a fair price for his copper, but George slickly likens it to his enmity towards Francis. We go back to the Daniels' cottage. Karen enters smiling, but is accosted by Mark Daniel, asking her where she's been. She tries to lie to him, but he tells her he waited outside of Dr. Ennis's for three hours for her, and when she hears that, she unravels, desperately grasping for excuses. It was just a kiss, uh, just once, or that Dwight was pestering her, uh, or that Mark left her alone too much, that he didn't love her enough. Mark insists that he did love her, but she freaks out, screaming, you don't know what love is. Which is true, or, or is it? I'm sure Rita and I will have a spirited debate about this in a few moments. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, she starts hitting him whilst trying to fight her off. He, quote, accidentally kills her. The hackneyed writing for this scene included him repeating the phrase, I never meant, over and over again. 
Uh, for the record, this is not how the death played out in the novels, but more on that later. Cut to Francis, who is clutching his head in despair and bitching about Ross again, his favourite pastime. George watches him calculatingly and asks him question after question about Carnmore, and eventually manages to draw out the names of the men involved with the scheme. Like literally all of them. Does he have a photographic memory or something? <laughs> Not necessarily. Remember, Francis was at the first meeting of all the men, so he would remember who they were from there, um, and they all swore him to secrecy when he bowed out. The next, <laughs> the next morning, Mark sneaks out of the cottage, and Dwight just happens to pop round for a visit. He's come to make amends. He, of course, finds Karen's dead body instead. The next scene is of Paul and Zaki telling Ross what happened. They all seem to think it was an accident, which is ridiculous given that they have zero proof of it, but I guess he was their mate, so a little wife-killing is okay. With very minimal effort, they manage to convince Ross that Mark won't get any justice. They remind him of Jim, as if the situations were remotely similar, and Ross sighs. He goes to visit Dwight, asks him how Karen died, broken neck. He encourages Dwight to hide away for about a week or so until Mark Daniel has been arrested. So, <clears throat> Ross' logic <laughs> dictates that Karen's death was accidental, and he is not a murderer, but somehow Dwight is totally in danger of being killed by him. So how do these two things coexist in his head? But anyway, Dwight refuses to leave. When Ross arrives home, Mark Daniel is waiting for him. His douchebag of a brother, Paul, keeps telling Ross that it was all Karen's fault, that she made Mark do it, which is gross. Mark thinks that he should turn himself in, that he isn't safe, but Ross disagrees, like the idiot that he is. Cut to Nampara, where Ross tells Demelza what is to be done. They're going to sneak Mark out of Cornwall to Ireland or Brittany tonight, from Nampara Cove in their boat. Demelza seems unimpressed by this idea. It seems to put her and Ross in a lot of risk if they are caught by the Redcoats swarming the area looking for Mark. But as ever, she goes along with it. Speaking of Redcoats, they arrive on Ross's doorstep. Demelza, who puts on her best fine lady outfit to welcome them, is introduced to Ross's friend, Captain McNeil. Ross and Demelza are friendly, but offer up very little helpful information, and after offering him a drink, they see Captain McNeil and his regiment off on their way to the coves to find Mark. When they return to the house, Demelza hands Ross a note that tells him Verity is married. Demelza is pleased, of course, but Ross thinks the note sounds abrupt, so he plans to visit Trenwith on his way to the cove. Ross brings the oars down to the cove for Mark to use in Ross's boat. He hides them in the cave, but on his way out, he spots the soldiers patrolling the cliffs and has to sneak away. Over at Nampara, Dwight shows up, startling a very anxious Demelza. He's tired of his own company and is seeking out Ross. So naturally, Demelza has to explain that Ross would not want him at Nampara tonight, they might have visitors, and who should knock on the door at that moment but Mark Daniel himself. Oh, what a pickle. At that moment, Ross is at Trenwith. He meets a very angry-looking Francis who accuses him of setting up the entire elopement plot. 
Ross is incredulous and confused, so he decides to leave. As he turns to leave, Francis is very, very stupid, and he insults Demelza. Ross looks furious, and in turn starts goading Francis, and so of course, Francis insults Demelza again, and Ross grabs his throat. Elizabeth intervenes. <clears throat> Back at Nampara, Demelza guides Mark Daniel into Ross's study and away from Dwight, but Dwight, of course, enters the hall, and Mark Daniel comes for him. Demelza, being the badass that she is, jumps in between them. I'll break ye soon enough. Stop this! Are you mad? Do you want to bring the soldiers down upon us? The show cuts between the confrontations happening at Nampara and Trenwith, paralleling Elizabeth and Demelza's roles as peacemakers. The men on this show really are the worst sometimes. <laughs> uh, eventually, Dwight agrees not to betray Mark Daniel because it would involve betraying Ross and Demelza. So all's well that ends well. Mark, Daniel, and Dwight go into separate rooms in the house, and Demelza sits on the stairs with a fire poker clutched in her hand, guarding the doors. Eventually, Ross returns home, and Demelza runs to him and into his arms. <laughs> Ross looks hella confused. <laughs> what in God's name? <laughs> <laughs> Ross first sees Dwight out of the house, and then Mark Daniel. They sneak over to Nampara Cove, and while hiding, Mark Daniel tells Ross that while hiding in Will Grace, he found a huge copper load. What weird time to share that information, Mark. While he's trying to describe where he found it, some redcoats conveniently wander past them, interrupting his tale. They make their way out onto the beach and are quickly discovered. They kill one of the soldiers. Like, that's what's needed. More murdering. They leg it towards the boat. Mark makes it on and sails away, but the gunshot from earlier has drawn the soldiers towards them. Ross and Paul have to fight others off and flee. Ross makes it back to Nimpara, where Demelza is waiting for him. <clears throat> they quickly undress Ross and rumple him up to look sleepy worn as the regiment approach. Captain McNeil informs him that Mark Daniel escaped on his boat and Ross does a truly awful job of seeming surprised. <laughs> McNeil is clearly on to him, but having no proof, no proof can only warn him against getting on the wrong side of the law. Oh, McNeil, if only he would listen. The next morning, Demelza is standing to Ross's hand, which he hurt when he was fighting the soldiers on the beach, lamenting that his band of brothers is shrinking. They always seemed more like a band of lackeys, but okay, Ross. <laughs> he tells her about his breakup with Francis, and Demelza looks worried. Fortunately for her, Ross is called away on a meeting. Dun dun dun! Demelza uses this as an opportunity to visit Francis at Trenwith. She tells Francis that she was the one who helped arrange the elopement. This does not end well. When she arrives back home, she finds Ross and explains to him, with flashbacks to the actual confrontation with Francis mixed in with the explanation, that she was the one that arranged Verity and Blamey's first meeting and that these last three months she's been passing their letters back and forth. She explains she wanted to help them. Ross is aghast because while her intentions were good, the repercussions of them were catastrophic. We now see flashbacks to the meeting Ross attended with the members of Carnmore. Each of the men who banked at Warleggins received letters rescinding support of their loans 
and had to immediately repay them. When pressed by Tonkin and Blewett, the Warleggans told them they should look at their investment in Carnmore as the reason why. These men now face the possibility of debtor's prison, bankruptcy, and the poorhouse. Your ignorance, your arrogance, your utter disregard for truth and consequence. He asks what else happened with Francis. Francis hurls some truly scathing insults at Demelza. Ignorant troll is the one that sticks out in my head uh, from that scene. He orders her to leave and never return. She flees the room, and we see Francis shaking with rage. And something else as well, because at that moment he realizes the damage he's done to Ross. Ross appears to blame Demelza for Francis telling George his partner's names. He tells her she has ruined many great men's lives and ruined their own family, and manages to convince Demelza that she has betrayed him. I've ruined everything. And this? Have I ruined this too? Have I lost your trust? Is it forever? It is. I can see it in your eyes. Can I ever win it back? I don't know. So, whoa, dude. Crank down the drama down a level, okay? Demelza is literally on the floor, on her knees, begging for forgiveness. And he, quote, magnanimously says he will try and forgive her. But Demelza is still distraught that she has caused a rift in the two sides of their family. She says she won't be happy until it is healed. Ross tells her she will be unhappy for a very long time and then walks out of the room as a distressed looking Demelza looks on. End of episode 7. Dun dun dun! Ooh, <laughs> so sad. Yeah. But she had it coming. <coughs> oh dear. Okay. We're, 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 we'll get into that in, in just a moment. I'm, I'm absolutely certain. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into the episode discussion. <laughs> Okay, what were some of your favorite moments? <laughs> uh, I had so many uh, in this episode, uh, but I loved all of the clandestine escapey stuff happening with Ross Mark, then the uh, innocent, why are you waking me up, Scotty stuff. Uh, the shirt and hair floofing move is an absolute favorite of mine. Um, I also love the confrontation with Demelza and Francis. It was brilliantly acted, and especially um, seeing it the first time since watching season two. Uh, you know, mad love for Kyle. Uh, he did a, a great job to to show the basically start of his kind of mental destruction that we see manifest within season the early part of season two. And then finally, the end scene uh, where Demelza is left in the library for a couple reasons. Uh, first, because it's the only end shot of the series where Ross and Demelza are not together in the last frame. And second, because it's the same spot where we see in series 207, Ross and Demelza fiercely embracing following his stay in the secret cash spot. I remember mentioning it when we covered that episode in the podcast that I really love the synergy that happens uh, like that on the show. I just love it when Ross gets angry at people trash talking the Melza. Um, well, in this episode, in this case, it was Judd and Pretty and um, Judd and Pretty, <laughs> Judd and Francis 
And um, it just speaks volume about how he loves her and uh, how he's not ashamed of who she is. And uh, I also love the passive uh, confrontational scenes <laughs> with McNeil and um, having Demelza playing the lady of the house because it shows that um, she doesn't have to put, a, to put an act and forget her background now that she married into the gentry, but it can come in handy at times. <laughs> I loved the George Francis scene the most. I think it's one of just the finest acting scenes on the show, both Jack and Carl's performances were just brilliant, but I particularly loved Jack's um, because the way he played George's manipulation was both like funny and unnerving. Um, and every time I watch it, I become just like totally gripped. I think this was the genesis of a lot of George's later attitude and like this was when he went full dark side (laughs) (laughs) so he's dark george now huh yeah um in this one scene you see like the full extent of his awfulness it starts with him like hitting on elizabeth like right in front of francis and then he just gets francis drunk and then starts preying on his vulnerabilities saying exactly what Francis wants to hear from him so that he can gain information from him. It was just so creepy, but like so wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Jack is amazing. Yeah. Really, really great acting. Uh, great acting in this, in this episode. Um, okay. So Ross blames the Malza for his partner's bankruptcy. So do you think it's fair or it's just crazy pens? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I'm going to be the one with the unpopular opinion today. Um, I think one of the challenges Ross and Demelza face in being from two different classes is the level of awareness she has or doesn't have when it comes to the consequences of, of society. Um, it's as if she's looking at the forest and is focused on a couple of the trees while Ross is seeing the forest in its entirety. Given her view, all she was doing was helping two people who loved one another to be together. She did not extrapolate the chain of what ifs that went along with that action. You know, she knew that Francis was against the match and Ross was not prepared to meddle in it again after the first time. She knew that if Francis found out about it, he would be pissed. You know, why else have all of the sneaking around that was going on? So she knew what she was doing would have consequences. What she didn't know is that Francis would assume Ross had something to do with it because he'd done so in the past and that he would fall into George's quid pro quo moment that occurs in this episode. So no, she's not directly to blame for the destruction of the company, but actions, when kept in secret, no matter how well intended, can have far-reaching consequences. That said, if Verity had had the courage to discuss her involvement with Blaney, with Francis, rather than sneaking out and eloping, some of Francis's rage towards Ross and or Demelza would have been diminished and put onto the person who is at the center of this thing, Verity. Um, but ultimately, Demelza was the one who set the wheels back in motion. So she bears part of the responsibility. Uh, this is actually the first time we see this fatal flaw of Demelza's character. And I love Demelza as much as the rest of you do, but her well-intended actions often wind up having devastating consequences. We see the next one to do so in episode eight, 
and more of these as we move through the rest of the series. Um, I think it's tough for everyone to keep Demelza, to give Demelza a hard time. And uh, I think her generosity and her wanting what's good for her neighbor is uh, her greatest weakness and uh, also her greatest strength. And uh, of course, she could not know that her actions would have uh, devastating consequences on the family. And uh, I think the main issue is that she helped Verity, only thinking about the short-term consequences that it would have, um, which would be Verity, who is her best friend, finally being with the man that she loves, and uh, without considering the long-term consequences um, it would have, uh, meeting uh, the breach that she would cause between uh, Ross and uh, Francis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the difference between short-term or tactical thinking versus long-term strategic thinking. Uh, the same is true when it comes to real versus philosophical thinking. And we have a perfect example of that in Jeremy in series two, when she hides her pregnancy from Ross because she hears him say he doesn't want children. In the book, it sounds more definitive when he says it, as opposed to the show where he says, not now. But when he discovers she's pregnant, he explains that when he said what he said, he was thinking philosophically, not making a definitive declaration. So in general, I find it very difficult to blame anyone other than George for this mess, because I think there were so many factors at play. Like, should we blame Verity for her elopement, Francis for his weakness... Ross for antagonizing George and taking such a huge financial risk in the first place. I think ultimately, all of these things are not any more responsible for the bankrupting of Ross's partners than Demelza's actions. The person who's responsible for being petty and vindictive and wholly without mercy gets a complete free pass from Ross in his speech. Damn, Demelza. Damn, girl. That, that's a really, really, really good point. <laughs> the clink of glasses at the end of that whole sequence makes me want to do some wig snatching on those warlegged ass hats. All in all, I think it this, this demonstrates just how freaking amazeballs the plot and character development Winston Graham has put into his writing. Uh, and as a, a hopeful writer myself, it's pretty awe-inspiring to see just how he's woven all of these characters' flaws and predicaments to kind of come to this nexus that, that George can, can take advantage of. And it's something that he does throughout the series of books. And it's just, it's just amazing. Yeah, just amazing. whether we love George or we love him, we got to admit that he's a mastermind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he managed to convince... Everybody responsible, like they're all blaming other people <laughs> and not him. <laughs> so, Karen's death in the series versus the books. I'm going to turn this thing over to Rita because I know she has some feels on this. Here comes the debate. This bothers <laughs> me so much. So, I'm going to start by quoting the extract from the book of Karen's death. It plays out slightly differently from what you see on screen. She went on babbling at him, throwing words at him, any words, pebbles at a giant, her only defence. She sprayed words, keeping his great anger away from her, twisting her brain this way and that. Then, when she saw that it was going to avail no longer, she sprang like a cat under his arm, leapt for the door. 
He thrust out one great hand and caught her by the hair, hurled her, screaming back into his arms. She fought with all strength in her power, kicking, biting, scratching. He pushed her nails away from his eyes, accepting her bites as if they were no part of him. He pulled the cloth away from her throat and gripped it. Her screaming stopped. Her eyes started tears, dried, grew big. She knew there was death, but life called her. Sweet life, all the sweet of youth not yet gone. Dwight, the baronet, years of triumph, crying, dying. She twisted and upset him, and they fell against the shutter whose flimsy catch gave way. They leaned together out of the window. She breathed him. A summer morning, the gazing eyes of the girl he loved, the woman he hated, her face swollen now, sickened, mad, his tears dropped on her face. Loose his hold, but her beautiful face still stared. Cover it with a great hand, push it away, back. Under his hand, coming from under his hand, a faint, gentle click. He fell back upon the floor of the cottage, groping, moaning upon the floor, but she did not move. So, the tone of that scene was fundamentally different. Way more brutal. And it's shifted with the adaptation to make Karen the instigator of the violence. The show's interpretation leaves me incredibly uncomfortable as a book reader. And yes, I read this scene before I saw it play out on screen, so... Maybe that has shifted my perspective slightly, but it kind of reads to me as if Mark Daniel's character is getting whitewashed and Karen's made into more of a clear villain. And I'm not here for this degradation of female characters to prop up the male ones. I understand they did it so to make Ross seem like a good guy for rescuing Mark, but as a result, they trashed an interesting, nuanced storyline and made a ridiculous, overwrought one. Yeah, well, for, first of all, um, you know, I, I am just blown away by the, the beauty and the horror that Graham wrote in that scene. I mean, it is, it is enough to take your breath away, uh, when you read through it. And, uh, you know, even with this excerpt, uh, you get that impact. It's something that, that even taken out of the full context of the, the storyline in the book, it still has that power to, uh, really make, uh, you feel, uh, uh, an, an, an emotion, um, around the, the situation. So, uh, another bravo kudos to Mr. Winston. Uh, I, um, the book is pretty brutal when it comes to Karen, uh, in general. And in the immediate aftermath of her death, it's really, uh, pretty harsh. Uh, and I wanted to read a, a, a section that comes after her death. Uh, all, and this is from page 287 of, uh, Jeremy. All that day, there was no word of Mark Daniel. Blackened and hurt, he had come up from the mine at midnight and in the early hours of Monday morning had put his stamp upon unfaithfulness and deceit. Then the warm day had taken him. Everyone knew so much, for like the quiet movement of wind among the grass, the whisper of Karen's deceit had spread through villages and hamlets around, and no one doubted that it brought her death. 
And curiously, no one seemed to doubt the justice of the end. It was the biblical punishment. From the moment she came, she had flaunted her body at other men. One other man, and they knew who, had fallen into her lure. Any woman with half an eye would have known that Mark Daniel was not to be cuckolded lightly. She had known the risk and taken it, matching her sharp wits against his slow strength. For a time she had gone on, and then she had made a slip, and that had been the end. It might not be law, but it was justice. Ugh. I mean, damn! Ugh, that makes me so angry. <laughs> uh, I mean, and that is, you know, that's how this book looks upon what happened in the immediate aftermath of, of Karen's death. And it's, it's shocking, uh, especially for the 21st century reader to, to, to read that. But when you think about it, that was something that was probably pretty common back in those days, which just makes my stomach turn. I don't know that necessarily Winston Graham agrees with that categorization of Karen, though. I feel like that was just what the villagers were thinking, because I always felt like he wrote Karen to be quite sympathetic. Like, you can tell he was, he himself treated her with a lot more respect than I feel like the adaptation gave her. I feel like the adaptation, it mirrors the attitudes of a bygone time rather than seeing it from our perspectives now. What is quite worrying to me, I'm not comfortable slut-shaming anybody or saying that she deserved to die because she cheated on her husband. And it's very startling that the show is trying to frame it this way. It just makes me so grossed out yeah but the the thing is is that as you go on and continue reading it, it you know this is this is what winds up basically determining whether or not mark is going to stand and face the the judgment that should have come his way or if he was going to wind up uh being assisted out of the the area to to freedom and that's, of course, what winds up happening both in the book and the adaptation. It's disturbing. Uh, it is unsettling. And, you know, I think what we see is the show has basically given us the, the character of Karen through the point of view of the village. Uh, and I think that, that, that unfortunately what that winds up doing is it winds up flattening uh, her character, and we don't see the the sympathetic side of her, and that's that's very unfortunate. It's just very one dimensional as well. Very, very much. Do you really want to take a multifaceted story and then make it sort of bland? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but is exactly. anyone to blame in this story? Like, should we blame Karen, who was a, a married woman, who? Uh, purposefully cheated on her husband or should we blame mark who um married a, a girl and he eventually found out found out that she was supposedly a um a woman hating a a triumph yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. or or should we or should we blame dwight, dwight who for... yeah who gave in uh, yeah to the attraction that mm -hmm. he had for a married woman like who is to blame yeah yeah 
uh, I blame the murderer <laughs> just generally because like, <laughs> one of them is a mistake and the other one is a crime. So I tend to like. Uh, I know at the time that adultery was a crime, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's just such an interesting storyline, given what happens in season two. There's so much adultery happening in season two. If Demelza had decided that she was going to kill Ross, would we be like, yeah, well, that was fair. He cheated on her. Nobody would be okay with that. I think a lot of that is down to sort of a gender issue. Women are always persecuted more for their unfaithfulness than men. Of course. Well, you know, we talk about the, the you know, the, how the a lot of the, the women characters on this book are, are impacted by the patriarchy uh, of the time. And that's that's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing here. It could have been very possible that if Mark was brought for trial for this, that his defense could be that she committed adultery. And go away with it. And and, and, and disgusting. And disgustingly enough, you know, that could have been enough to get him off on this. I know. My only saving grace in this storyline, I think, was like Dwight's reaction, which was that everybody was insane. Yes. And that Karen didn't deserve this. Like he was horrified by everything. Mm -hmm. Um like my problem is with the characterization of Mark is like this innocent little lamb who mm-hmm. like, oh he didn't mean to hurt her yeah oh it was an accident yeah Ridiculous. yeah yeah um but i did like that he was willing to step forward and take the consequences yeah. for his actions mm-hmm. what bothered me more was ross saying no we'll just sneak you out of the country <laughs> yeah. uh, i know he doesn't like the law but you don't just like let murder go it's murder yeah <laughs> one yeah. crime you don't let go <laughs> okay t- let's take a deep breath let's take a deep breath <laughs> deep breath <sighs> let's let's move on before we spin into a, a cycle of depression that will lead to tears and and uh, bourbon. So. <laughs> Speaking of depression. <laughs> so, um, Francis was at his lowest this week. <laughs> and so, what do you think was fueling his anger and despair? Uh, do you guys remember in episode five when Francis and Elizabeth were looking up at Charles's portrait and, you know, he says something about how it, it's a, a hard thing to live up to and of course, Elizabeth asks him the question, you know, can you not? And he takes it as a judgment. Um, you know, Charles Poldark, who is long dead by now, remains this constant and almost literal hovering presence over Francis. Uh, Charles predicted that he would have a son that was neither use nor ornament. And Francis has failed at everything. Uh, that his father left him, with the single exception of keeping Verity and Blamey apart. Verity's elopement, despite his orders for her to never have anything to do with him again, was the last failure, the last thing Charles left for his son to carry on. And he failed. You know, know, this is the start of his complete slide into uh, depression and what we see manifest itself uh, in the first episode of series two. Um, I think Verity's elopement was the final straw. 
um, with everything uh, around Francis's life uh, going wrong, uh, being married to a woman who, you know, is still head over heels for the cousin, having a failing mind, an indebted estate, and um, his sister's fate felt like the only thing he could uh, have some control over. And uh, personally, what angers me the most in this story is how George uses that anger and the despair to serve his scheming. And um, yeah, and sometimes I just, not sometimes, but I wonder why is Francis so obsessed with keeping Verity in this house? I mean, is this a way of telling uh, that if she leaves, uh, he will feel abandoned because, uh, you know, she's the only uh, whole dark left because Aunt Agatha, well... Uh... You know, I, you know, I... I'm wondering if, you know, some of his attitude about Verity and her place within that household it transferred over from his father. You know, his father basically saw her as, as kind of one step above the servants. And Verity would be the one who would care for Jeffrey Charles. Uh, you know, she, she would be the one who would take care of, of Aunt Agatha. Uh, as as she grew more and more infirm so you know her role in his mind was you know not to find someone and marry but to be the person who would take care of all of them he didn't see his wife as doing any of that i mean to be fair to francis verity also has this assumption about herself in episode two um, when um, she makes that speech about her role in the household, it's sort of, she's assumed it as a given, like it's been herited on down from her father. So if he does have that assumption, I think it's just because it's always been the case. Um, Rewatching this episode made me really think about how tough the situation would have been for Francis. I was previously just thought he was being an idiot. By making this decision, I think Verity has chosen Andrew over him. You remember at the end of last week's episode, um, Andrew writes, she has to choose between her brother and me. And uh, you can only really suppose that this was the decision that Verity made. And the method she chose meant that she would have no relationship or contact with her brother anymore. And that would have been incredibly hard for any brother to take, but especially so for one who is as insecure and unhappy as Francis is, it just would have been devastating. And season two really highlighted that he did love her and he wanted to have a relationship with her. So I think his lashing out was so extreme because of that. He can't be angry with Verity. She's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So he aims his anger at Ross instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I, one of the things that I love about kind of how they wound up working the adaptation, you know, and this is, <laughs> this is kind of one of those moments where, you know, I'm not finding myself grumbling about the adaptation, um, as much as I have with regards to some of the other things that, that happened. But when it comes time for the reconciliation to happen, when in season two, you know, Ross is talking to Blamey and Francis winds up coming over. And um, this is the moment that Ross implies very strongly to Francis that, you know, I know that you were the one that handed over all of the names to George and caused all of this craziness to happen because you were so angry and upset about Verity. Here is your opportunity to 
make amends and in some way mend that thing that split us apart as a family. Uh, and so I, I really do like how they wound up using the uh, elopement and marriage of Verity and Andrew to be the thing that winds up bringing uh, some resolution to Ross and Francis for the basically betrayal that he served upon Ross by giving George the names. So speaking of the elopement, do you think Verity's elopement was wise? Note, not marriage, but the elopement, given how it ended up tearing the family apart. <laughs> no. And I love Verity. She's our precious cinnamon roll. However, she lacked the courage to stand up to her brother and tell him of her reunion with Blaney, despite several opportunities to do so. And even after the debacle of the ball, when she started writing to him and passing messages via Demelza, she had an obligation to stand up to Francis and declare her intentions. The truth is, in the book, Verity has no idea of the scale of destruction that occurred following her elopement. You know, would Carnmore have failed if D Verity had been the one to talk to Francis about her intentions to, to leave and marry Andrew? Uh, I don't think it would. Uh, it would Demelza have felt obligated to go to Trenwith to care for the family during the, the episode of Putrid Throat if Verity had been the one to talk to Francis about her intentions? Who knows? Um, I think, I don't think the elopement was wise, but I understand Verity's action because uh, when you've lived, uh, when you've lived in the same house since you were born and then you saw all the people around you growing up and then, uh, getting married, building families, moving on with their lives while you're still considered the governess and you are expected to tend to everyone without caring about your life and your personal desires. At some point, I think you gotta do something big. To stand up for yourself and um, unfortunately Verity's elopement was the only thing left to try and uh, thank god she succeeded but at what price I think this was like her one true hold arc moment you know because they all have to do something sort of selfish and dumb and <laughs> <laughs> she is often the sensible normal one and this was her like this was her one thing this thing was incredibly rewarding for herself personally but had devastating consequences for everyone around her and do i hold it against her not even a little bit but i can't say that it was particularly wise or that i would recommend it um i think in the short term it was great for her but she could easily have managed the situation differently and caused less disaster but like it's the podark in her <laughs> <laughs> so what this is you're you're saying oh she gets a pass this is her one poldark moment so it's like okay Consider, you, like, compared you've got to one what moment people have done <laughs> like she didn't gamble away the mind yeah. or, the 10 billion things that Ross did. So I'm like, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Oh, goodness. Goodness gracious. All right. 
Okay, so booklet time! Spoiler warning again. You must know the drill by now. We are about to go into our book club section and there are about to be a bunch of spoilery discussion. So if you're a spoiler for big listener, then this is where you get off. Again, thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye-bye! Okay, book club time! Uh, we get right into the action at the start of Four Swans. Uh, what has struck you the most in these six chapters? Uh, this can be a specific person, action, and or situation. All roads lead to the kitchen, said. Uh, I thought the first six chapters were pretty action-packed. What struck me was this observation by Demelza in chapter four, part two. She sometimes wondered what there was about herself that made men so forthcoming. In those early days when she had gone to various receptions and balls, she had always had them two or three deep asking for the next dance and often for more besides. Sir Hugh Bedrugan still lumbered over to Nampara, hopefully a couple times a year, presumably expecting that sooner or later persistence would have its reward. Two years ago at the dinner party at Trelissic, there had been the Frenchman that had larded his entire dinner conversation with improper suggestions. It didn't seem right. If she had known herself to be supremely beautiful or striking, as beautiful, for instance, as Elizabeth Warlegan, or as striking as Caroline Ennis, it might have been more acceptable. Instead of that, she was just friendly, and they took it the wrong way. No, seriously? I mean, groping, begging for invitations to see her again? Why is it so prevalent when they know she's a married woman and know her husband? It's so uncomfortable. I think it struck a chord with me because I get it. I've been in that situation. I've always been a friendly person and made eye contact, smiled, and sadly, and unjustly, it has gotten me into an awkward some awkward situations. Absolutely addicted, Paul Darkey says, <clears throat> right from the start, I was riveted by George and his relentless digging for answers with Behenna, Behenna, and then Tab. The man was determined. I'll give him that. And, uh, ooh, Aunt Agatha. <laughs> and, uh, Amanda Paul Dark said, <clears throat> With this reread, I find myself paying closer attention to the situation ar around Sir Francis Bassett. I think the first time around, I wasn't really paying attention and missed some early hints of later events. BPAC67 says, George's obsession in trying to find out whether Valentine is his son following Aunt Agatha telling him that Valentine was not a premature baby. The distance it has put in his marriage with Elizabeth and his relationship with Valentine... Caroline and Dwight's wedding and marriage. I so love the banter, the two of them, particularly Caroline's sassiness. I personally was struck by the masterful way Elizabeth managed to manipulate George in their confrontation. She is very cunning when she wants to be. It almost makes you wonder what she could do if only she ever actually took any action. Her and George are perfect for each other. They are. Okay, so question number two. What is the storyline that has grabbed your attention and why? And uh, All Roads Lead to the Kitchen said, I am intrigued by Sam's maybe kind of sort of fascination with Emma Tree Girls. While he does <laughs> seem a bit taken with her, I look forward to seeing if, if the business of saving her soul wins out or if he can do both, court her and then save her. Actually, Emma in general is intriguing, and I hope to see her character fleshed out in season three. Also, with Ross buying the house and land on, Dra on Drake's behalf, is it too much to wish for a reunion some years down the line with, with Morwenna? You know, the notebook style. <laughs> you know, I've never seen that or read that book or seen the movie, so I always hear these references and I'm like, I have no idea what this is about, but... That's another show. 
Let's see. Absolutely addicted Poldarky said, the instant attraction to and pursuit of Demelza by Armitage. To me, it was riveting and disturbing. I felt so very worried for her. Armitage's fascination just seemed so pushy and sort of predator-ish to me. But as a woman, who amongst us wouldn't be a little flattered? He is a poet after all. And uh, I have so many strong feels about this story arc. Uh, when I first read the book, my very first impression of Armitage was that he was just an effing predator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have ranted on my blog about this. Uh, I don't know how many different times. Um, let's see. And, you know, what made me even more upset is that Demelza recognized it from the start. Yeah. And, and she knows that what he's doing is absolutely wrong. And, you know, that was, you know, one of the things that really upset me about this. You know, and while Demelza seems to have this something that draws men to her, you know, as we heard uh, in a quote uh, from All Roads uh, a few moments ago, you know, this is the first time that she's been drawn to another man. All of the other ones she's been able to manage because, you know, she is not interested in pursuing anything you know, with them from a, a physical perspective. This is the first time that she's been drawn. And the other she's been able to manage. This one, not so much. And there's a, a, great, a great quote uh, from this section that I will find and I'll put up on my blog uh, about this uh, so that uh, we can uh, move on to the, the next comment with regards to this question. So Amanda Poldark said, Drake establishing a new identity for himself as a blacksmith in the wake of Morwenna. He reminds me a bit of Ross right after Elizabeth married Francis. That is a comment I have later too. BPAC67 said, George Willugan trying to find out whether Valentine is really his son and the lengths he is going to include, including questioning former servant Tab about whether Elizabeth had male visitors at night and Dr. Behenna about whether Valentine was full-term or premature. <laughs> yeah, I loved all of his prowling around and trying to put two and two together. And remember, Elizabeth was the one that planted the seed about the entrances to trend with that, that she didn't have any idea about when they discovered Ross had visited Agatha over Christmas. So... You know, it, it's kind of like he is just like picking up on all of these things that have been said and, and following this stream of logic to, to where he hopes it doesn't wind up going. And I, and, and I can't wait to see uh, Jack Farthing play this. It's going to be hilarious. Really it's it's going to be amazing. It's just going to be amazing. So I'm, just, I'm so excited. So. Uh, okay, question number three. Uh, is there anything in the story that has bothered you and why? So this is just my opinion, but I don't like Drake being mopey and ridiculous. It holds no appeal to me because it reminds me far too much of early Ross. <laughs> He's Ross um, 2.0. <laughs> you remember, I don't like mopey Ross. <laughs> yes. I loathed when Drake was like, quote, it'd be easier if she were dead. That's an idiotic thing to say. Like, just, it uh, blows my mind. But then but, I remember he's 19, and I'm like, okay. But I understand it. I, I understand it. You know, if you are that deeply in love with someone, you know, it's it's hard to think about them being with someone else. Um, and especially within this context, 
her being with somebody else meant that, you know, that other person was knowing her in the way that he wanted to know her, you know, has that, that level of intimacy with her that Drake knows he will never have. So, you know, I, I get it, but you know, it's still stupid. I'm sorry, but it just comes across as a very like dramatic teenagery thing to say. But he's a teenager. I know, but like, I don't have to like it. I'm just like, do some growing and then I'll deal with you. Oh, <sighs> I just know I will. Okay, so um, All Roads Lead to the Kitchen said, nothing to bother some so far other than George and Ozzy in general, but that's nothing new here. And uh, <laughs> absolutely addicted Poldarki, several situations, but mostly Ozzy Whitworth and his disgusting behavior. Forcing himself, quote, his nightly exercise, ew. On poor Morwenna, it is positively revolting. He is a pig, and I think we can all agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'm ready um, to see the scenes actually uh, played out on screen. It's going to be so hard to watch. Yeah. And I don't think I'll be physically able to. Um, Okay, so question number four, favorite characters. Who are they, and what are you looking forward to seeing happen to them in The Four Swans? And uh, All Roads Lead to the Kitchen said, As far as newer characters go, I would say Emma is a fast, fast favorite. Not sure why, why I want her to see her go yet, but I look forward to the journey. Absolutely Addicted Poldarki said, I still adore Caroline and Dwight. I so badly want them to be happy, content. It is early yet, I know, and poor Dwight is still recovering from his imprisonment ordeal. I worry, though, especially when Caroline mentions to Demelza, quote, I think our marriage has been a great mistake. Mistake, uh-huh. And uh, no, Caroline, it hasn't been a mistake. And uh, I look forward to seeing them as a married couple and how they had better make it work. Yeah, they better make it mm-hmm. work, but they will. Yeah, yeah, they will. Amanda Poldark, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Demelza, Drake, and Dwight Caroline adjusting to married life. BPAC67 says Dwight and Caroline in the beginnings of their marriage. Can Drake overcome his heartbreak and be able to make a new life for him now that he has his own business as a blacksmith? Morwenna somehow escaping her marriage to Ozzy and Ross and Demelza's marriage. In terms of new characters, my faves are Sam, of course, Mm. and Emma. Emma is one of my favorite characters in the entire series i love mm-hmm. her so hard I she's really great the, she's so so quick-witted yeah i love that and i love yeah, the scene where too. sam and emma met in particular because it was really funny <laughs> and i'm really looking forward to rereading their scenes together because mm-hmm. they're my favorite entire series yeah i mean i love the the scene where um she's carrying the that piece of wood <laughs> it's like i carried it all the way over here what's your problem man <laughs> and he's like no you're you're just a maiden you can't possibly carry it like, really <laughs> can you pick out a passage that strikes you as particularly profound or interesting please share it and why all roasts lead to the kitchen uh, I think back to a passage I shared for the first question along with a couple moments that reinforced it like 
Demelza was relieved when dinner broke up. Uh, not that she so much minded General McCormick's intimacies, but his hand was growing hotter and she was afraid <laughs> for her frock. Sure enough, when she was able to look at herself upstairs, there were grease stains. <laughs> Ew! That's so um, great. Yeah, and Caroline telling Demelza, My dear, I verily believe that if you and I walked together into a room of eligible men, they would immediately all look at me, but in five minutes, they would all come to be clustered around you. <laughs> that is very, very, very true. That's very true. Absolutely addicted, Poldark, he said. <clears throat> you may laugh at Sam, mistress, but you'll never make him ashamed of his goodness. Drake speaking on his brother Sam's behalf to Emma. The love shared between brothers warms the heart. Also, it shows the dedication to faith that Sam has. Drake was right. His brother is not ashamed nor apologetic in his faith. The two brothers are so honest, sincere, kind. Sam will not falter. Amanda Poldark said, My favorite section is Dwight and Caroline's wedding night, but I think the section in particular is interesting considering season two's Where is your room line? The show is clearly changing the tone of their relationship a bit. This is a quote from the novel. They had come home, for there seemed nowhere better to go. It had been their common home since Dwight returned an emaciated wreck from the prison records camp air. Caroline had insisted that he stay where she could best look after him. In these months, while flouting the overt conventions, they had observed a separateness of establishment which would have satisfied the most prudish of their neighbours. It had not altogether been moral consideration which had influenced them. Dwight's life had flickered and wavered like a candle with a thief in it. To introduce the demands of passion might have seen it flicker out. Caroline said, Well, my dear, so we are here together at last, unified and sanctified by the church. Do you know, I find it very difficult to detect any difference. Dwight laughed. Nor I. It's hard not to feel adulterous. Perhaps it's because we have waited so long. Too long too long but the delay has been outside our control not in the first the fault was mine it was no one's fault at least it has come right in the end mm. i can't wait to see it please god don't don't monkey around with it too much bpac 67 uh, at the end of george's visit to dr behanna to find out whether valentine was premature or for old term baby the doctor had a conversation with his housekeeper, Mrs. Childs. As part of that conversation, he uses a Latin quote, and the quote is spot on in capturing the impact on the relationship between George and Elizabeth. George and Valentine, that Aunt Agatha's claim to George that Valentine was not a premature baby. Quote, Reckon I never seen Mr. Worlingen come here afore like that. Perhaps twas private-like, not wanting his household to know. Behenna returned from the window. I think it was Cato who said, Oh, God. Nam, nam, nam muli, nam muli, takusi. Nam muli, takusi, no sed, no sed, ese locutum. I don't know. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, always bear that in mind, Mrs. Child. It should be a guiding principle of yours, as many others. Maybe so, but I don't know what it means. So I cannot say, can I? For your benefit, I will translate. It is harmful to no one to have been silent, but it is often harmful to have spoken. 
That is so effing true about so many things. As always, fill in the blank. Dear Debbie, I will be your fan forever if you include blank in season three. All roads lead to the kitchen. Dear Debbie, I will be your fan forever if you include the table loaded with the handsome meal of boiled codfish with shrimp sauce, soup, venison, beef, mutton, damson tarts, syllabubs, and lemon pudding, burgundy, champagne, Madeira, sherry, and port in season three. That has the potential to be a beautiful, sensuous scene. I agree, but my God, that's a lot of food. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely Addicted Polarchy says, Dear Debbie, I will be your friend forever if you include Caroline and Dwight in season three. I don't think there is any need to be worried about that, but okay. No. And um, Amanda Poldark says, Dear Debbie, I will be your friend forever if you include a full, <laughs> a full Dwight Caroline sex scene in season three. Aww. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, if, if you're thinking about it turning into some kind of outlaw, Outlander-esque kind of thing, uh, you can, yeah, that's, that ain't gonna happen. A full, uh, you know, full we, one girl, I mean... <laughs> I mean, we, we may see them snugly naked in bed, at, you know, on their wedding night. But, you know, I think that it's it's not going to go much farther than that. They, they don't do that kind of thing on Poldark. Which is why we write it. <laughs> BPAC 67. Discussion between Dwight and Caroline, page 29. Their wedding night and reception, page 30 to 33. And their first night together as a married couple, page 44 to 46 in season 3. Okay, so question time. So BPAC67 asks, season three is going to only cover half of the four swans. Are we going to read until the end of the book or are we going to stop halfway? I'm assuming that they have filmed till the end of book two. Okay, I can finally start blathering about something I've intimated over the last few podcasts. Uh, there's a very good possibility that they will have jumbled up some of the timeline that occurs in Black Moon and Four Swans. And one of the reasons I say this is because of the character of Hugh Armitage. We meet him fairly early in the Four Swans, as you know. And actually, we meet him at the end of Black Moon. And for those of you who knows what happens with this character, uh, Josh Whitehouse, the actor who plays him, tweeted in January that he's finished his role on the show. Quote, I just wrapped my last scene on at Poldark TV. What an amazing experience it has been. I can't wait to see how it turns out and share with you. He is a part of Four Swans until close to the very end of the book. All that said, when asked if he would be going back for season four, he said, you'll have to wait and see. So granted, None of us know whether they've got season four approval yet. I would assume so, but they haven't made an announcement. In any event, all of this makes me very, very nervous about how they're going to spin that particular story arc and the character motivations that are part of that story arc. So personally, I think we'll need to go ahead and read through the entire book just because we have no idea what they have plunked where. I think that that tweet is just too ambiguous to determine the length mm-hmm. of his arc. Yeah. Um, 
it could easily mean by confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would prefer it if he was back for season four because I mm-hmm. think otherwise, shit, that's a lot of story. Not Maybe it will feel rushed. Exactly. One thing I hope that they don't do is they don't leave us with a cliffy of of Demelza and Hugh seeing the seals. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um. That would be freaking terrible. And it's yeah. also not into the later half of the book, is it? Exactly. So... Exactly. So so we'll see. Okay. We will discuss this um, after we've read the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for next week, uh, we're going to continue on in book one, uh, chapters seven through 12. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. So be ready for some questions about it. And uh, they'll be posted as soon as possible. <laughs> and that is all from us this week we will be back next week with episode 20 we will be finishing our season 1 rewatch with episode 8 and we will continue our book club with more chapters from the four swans so feel free to get in contact with us either on twitter at Podcast or at our blog poldarkpodcast.tumblr.com and be sure to rate us on itunes or follow us on soundcloud and we'll see you next week bye bye Bye, guys!
You loved me